everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lost with Friends. As always, I'm your host, Paul, and I'm joined today by three wonderful guests, all of whom have been on the show before, but why don't you guys go ahead and reintroduce yourselves. Hey, everybody. It's Jake, a.k.a. Mr. Lostpedia. Hi, this is Wayne. Uh, it's been, uh, I've been on a few episodes lately, <laughs> so it's good to be back again. And I am Pat, the one known as the Twitch guy. And uh, this episode is really interesting for Pat, actually. One of the reasons that I wanted Pat on this episode was because I want to say the last time he was on was where the cabin was kind of introduced. We're going to be discussing cabin fever today. And after doing that episode and then a few episodes later, I did the season four premiere with Kevin. I kind of felt like we cheated each other. Pat and we kind of cheated the audience a bit in talking about the cabin because we both loved that episode so much uh man behind the curtain I believe and we just loved that episode so much that we kind of just like gushed over the whole thing and I feel like we skipped so much of like the mythology of the cabin so I knew I had to get you on this one because there's so much here and Wayne obviously asked for this episode and I figured Jake hasn't been on this whole season, I think. So I was like, yeah, let's get Jake in there, too. So I got the, the pity invite, which I uh, <laughs> accepted very quickly. <laughs> yeah, OK. <laughs> Long pause, because he's like, well, he's right. But I, how do I lessen the blow? Eh, whatever. OK. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> All right. You know what, Jake? You already know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that was the last time I was on. I remember uh, I completely agree with you. I think we definitely could have gotten into that a little bit more. Uh, so I'm excited to definitely kind of dive back into it and go go through it with the rest of the guys. So Now, Wayne, seeing as this was uh, – and I, it's going to sound sarcastic when I say it, but seeing as this was yet another one you requested – uh, and we were talking about it briefly before we uh, before we all hopped on the call. What is it about this one that draws you in? Oh well, I mean, just like just every time I watch this, I'm like, oh, there's so many like amazing things about the mythology that are like dealt with in this episode, uh, and you know, like you know, new mysteries that are introduced that were like answered later, and answers a few mysteries that were introduced previously. So it's like you know, it's kind of like a really pivotal episode in the in the entire series um so i mean well i'm sure we'll, we'll get into like you know most of them hopefully as we as we talk about it i would definitely agree i feel like um probably until some of these things got answered with some of the time travel stuff later in season five that this probably would have been it's it's definitely my favorite episode of season four but up until all of the stuff got answered, just because it set up so many more questions, like you said, this definitely was one of my top episodes of the series overall. It would still probably be, I'd say, maybe top 10 if I put together a list, because I never officially have. But, um, yeah, no, this a lot of mythology, which I figured Jake is probably into as well. Um, and, yeah, I'm just so excited. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say this. I think out of all episodes of Lost, this episode probably contains the most number of unanswered questions that I have not been able to figure out. So this should be interesting. 
Oh, see, one of, when when you pity invited me, Paul, you said that Wayne and Pat were going to be on this, and I'm like, all right, like I, I haven't done an episode with with either of them yet. And then I thought more about it. I'm like, oh, it's Cabin Fever, as you mentioned, Strong Mythology, and and for those listening, uh, Wayne is the guy for a reason. He's got theories up his sleeves for the next 20 years, I'm sure, that we'll be hearing about. And I was super excited to see what Wayne had to say. And like now I'm hearing that like he's got a bunch of unanswered questions. I'm like, uh-oh, but if Wayne doesn't have the answers, who does? So, <laughs> well, let so me... maybe, I don't know, I think our brain powers combined, who knows, we might come up with a theory or two right here, right now. Well, let me tell you this, Jake. I don't necessarily want to spoil too much because I haven't. Um, I want you. I want uh, you and Pat to listen to the episode. But Wayne, the other day when we were recording, came up with a theory that I ha- I was silent. Like you said before about being silent with the pity invite, I was silent momentarily <laughs> because it just blew my mind so much. <laughs> <laughs> Which episode is this? Which episode should I be looking uh, out for? I want to. What was it? Something nice back home. Some, something nice back home. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so when that one goes up, which will be very soon in comparison to when we're recording this, um, but yeah, no, he had a theory that just, and I actually. Because I'm recording a few of these out of order, so I actually have recorded one or two for season five already, um, and I I brought that theory up to someone that I had, and the person just like shut it down immediately. But it was still <laughs> to the point where it blows my mind. I'm excited. <laughs> Do we want to get right into this episode, Cabin Fever? I'm ready if you guys are. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go for it. All right, here we go. We start out with a young girl, clearly in the past, putting on the Buddy Holly record every day. I love this song. I love that it's featured in this episode and this series overall. Uh, most, well, most everybody knows I'm really into like kind of classic rock and like 60s, 50s, 70s music. So to hear a Buddy Holly song, really awesome. And again, being in one of uh, arguably my favorite episodes, fantastic. This young girl gets ready, she puts some makeup on and all that sort of stuff does up her hair to look really snazzy. Her mother then comes in asking where she's going and who she's going with. The young girl who we find out is Emily Locke simply tells her that she's in love with him and going with him as the mother says. Uh, The mother tries insisting that this isn't a good idea, he's so much older and that she should listen to the mother. But Emily runs outside and gets hit by a car as she's telling her mother that she loves the man. Not long after that, Emily is being wheeled down the hallway of a hospital and she informs the medical staff that she's pregnant, almost six months as a matter of fact. A bit later than that, we then see the baby being born and we see that Emily can't hold the baby, a boy, because he's too premature and they take him away. She insists that his name is John. They need to name him John. I think like just a few seconds before, uh, before she said that, like I, I realized, oh, this must be John Locke's mother. Yeah, I, I actually felt the same way. I remember watching it for the first time, and I felt, obviously, you know, that's a dead giveaway. But um, I definitely felt drawn to to this opening scene quite a bit. Like it was one of those opening scenes that just grabbed me right from the get go, and I was already immediately invested in what this episode was going to bring 
uh, you know, throughout the next 40 something minutes. So, yeah, same here. Oh, I was slightly spoiled uh, watching this episode live. I was on a bunch of lost sites and they mentioned it was going to be lock centric. So uh, it wasn't as big of a shock since I knew it was lock centric. I just knew this had something to do with lock. And when they said Emily, I was like, oh, yeah, that's the name of Locke's mom. Got it. Yeah. On the island, we then see John, Hurley, and Ben trekking through the jungle on the search for the cabin. Locke and Hurley are talking about who built the cabin uh, in the middle of the jungle, but neither of them has an answer. Locke says he's just hopeful the man who lives in the cabin can help them against the freighter military type people. They then have a hilarious interaction, all three of them, where none of them actually know where they're going. Ben is following Hurley, but Hurley and Locke are following Ben. But as Best ben... conversation ever. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> but as Ben points out, Hurley was the last one to see the cabin. Locke then decides that they're going to make camp, and he also says that he does not know what will happen if Kimi's team comes back. Back on the freighter, Saeed and Desmond see the helicopter returning. Kimi gets his man, who's been badly beaten and torn up, off the helicopter and tries to tell the doctor that this was done by a pillar of black smoke. Kimi then goes directly to Saeed and demands to be told how many people are on the island and where they are. But Saeed is not as afraid of Kimi as most everyone else is. The captain then shows up asking what Kimi is doing, but Kimi aims a gun at the captain, thinking that Captain Galt is the reason that Ben knows all the information about him. But Galt corrects him that it was someone else leading Kimi to Michael, who has been handcuffed to some pipes somewhere else on the boat. As Kimi gets there, he kicks the cot that Michael is on, causing it to crush his leg, putting Michael into excruciating pain. Kimi asks if Michael knows who he is, and eventually, after Kimi applies more pressure, Michael admits that he does know Martin Kimi. He also admits that he provided this information to Ben Linus. Kimi then goes to shoot Michael, but nothing happens when he pulls the trigger multiple times. Galt tells him that they need Michael anyway because he needs to fix the engines. He's the only one who can because he's the one who broke them. And obviously we know why Michael can't die. He still has work to do and all that other sort of stuff. But it's funny to see that happen to the point where he even says to the captain, he's just like, you need to fix my gun. Clearly something's wrong with it. And then I just like do that. Like, yeah, so we realize, okay, Michael can't die right here, but he can still get the crap kicked out of him. Like he can still feel pain and things like that. He just can't be killed to the point of death you know yeah you know as i as i mentioned like in uh, the previous episode that i was on i'm one of the few who uh, who doesn't believe that the island has like a, a a consciousness or that the island decides things on its own so like that kind of like messes up you know my my thinking along like what is it that causes michael to not die um but I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's still a valid question. Like, you know, so we know that Michael can't die at this point, but what exactly is like manipulating the gun to, to jam up? No, I mean, that's kind of we've seen it throughout the show where other people have tried to shoot themselves or, you know, whatever the case was, even when he crashed his car and everything like that. Like, I feel like that has been a recurring theme throughout the show for certain people. I, Wayne brings up an excellent point as to what actually manipulates that 
Um, and I think that's a great discussion piece because I think there's going to be a lot of different theories when it comes to what that actual uh, manipulation piece of it is. Um, I don't know because like, and see, that's the thing is like, I mean, because as Wayne said, and believe me, this isn't even the theory that blew my mind. The fact that he doesn't think that the island has a consciousness. Um, but he said about the fact that like there's because see, I always just took it. Like, yes, technically there could be, like, a specific malfunction with the gun. Like, is it actually jamming? Or is, you know, like, what specifically, if you took the gun apart, what is the thing that makes it shoot later but doesn't make it shoot now? Personally, I just always chalked that up to just, like, island mysticism. You know? Just count it as one of the, as as the first of many uh, unanswered questions that I can't figure out in this episode. (laughs) back on the island we hear a tree being chopped down Locke follows the sound and comes upon a man who we'll find out is named Horace Horace is building a cabin getaway for himself and his wife from the Dharma initiative this is clearly a dream sequence he even mentions having been dead for about 12 years before blood rushes down from his nostril suddenly he's back to chopping the tree again and he tells Locke he needs to find him, and when he does, Locke will find him, meaning Jacob. He then introduces himself yet again as part of the dream is on a loop, and as he pushes the tree down once more, the moment it thuds, Locke wakes up. He then tries to wake Hurley up, who's dreaming about Malamars, and he tells Hurley he now knows where to go, and Ben, who's been watching all this, simply says, I used to have dreams. Yeah, we're seeing... uh definitely the power shift from Ben to Locke here. I mean, I think there was, there's, there's been plenty of mentions of it before, like when Ben was in uh, captivity in the barracks, you know, mentioning that he doesn't really have control over the others anymore, but that now Locke is becoming that leader, and uh, uh, it's really starting to hit Ben, you know, right here as well. Unless this is, uh, this dream was like planted there by the man in black which is like, kind of like my personal theory about this in retrospect i think that too yeah cool and the other cool thing about that dream sync was now we know exactly when the purge happened yeah exactly the 12 years lands it right near ben's Actually, birthday or on ben's birthday yeah i got a note about this because while well, yes yeah, so horace died he says he died 12 years prior this takes place in 2004 which would mean 1992 also that is my birth year so that's pretty cool um, and I hate to uh, use the words lost encyclopedia, but I have to. Uh, the lost encyclopedia dates the purge at 1987. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong, that thing's full of errors left and right, but that's for a different podcast and the other ones that I've been on. Um, the Lostpedia article does have a whole section on what year could it have happened. You know, I mean, I. I like to roll with the 1992. It makes sense to me. Um, but I guess there is a discrepancy of what year exactly happened. Mm. Oh, I've always just uh, pictured it as 92. Like that's, I thought that was just like the commonly it, held yeah, thing. Me too. It makes sense to me when you look at like, uh, Ben, how he, you know, how he ages and everything like that. Like I can picture 1992 Ben looking like how it did in the man behind the curtain. I guess there. I guess their whole, like, how it could possibly be 1987 versus 1992 is it has to do with Danielle. Um, it says when Danielle arrived in 1988, 
Several of the others appeared to be living in the jungle. She claimed that they took control of the radio tower sometime after the distress signal. But then how could Danielle have entered the radio tower without Dharma and intervention in 1988? Because that would mean Dharma's still around. And you don't think Dharma would just let this French chick walk into the radio tower and change the message. Yeah, but she's crazy. We don't know necessarily what, like how soon after she actually did that. Well, it had to be 16 years, right? Like that's how long it was playing for, which would make it 19. Yeah, which would make it, yeah. Yeah, but isn't there a whole thing with the fact that those numbers are off because it doesn't necessarily take into account the fact that every time it adds a new number which may which would throw the the iterations off because it's now set a new number so the message has could have been 16 years or whatever but because it's always adding a new number at the end of all the iterations that prolongs the message right so then that would make it would that technically make it longer than 16 years then if like you add that in does that mean more time is added? I don't know. Oh, this, oh you mean, so you mean like Saeed didn't didn't account for like the the reading of the number? Yeah, because when you switch over from 999 to 1000, 1001, 1002, 1010, 1013, you know what I mean? Like you, you say more syllables, therefore syllables. wasting more seconds. Which in that case, it would make it shorter. Yeah. Technically, because that time frame would take away from it. And also, okay. it is it is still possible, even if the Dharma Initiative was around, we don't know that the, the radio tower is actually manned. I mean, it obviously didn't have to be. No, you're right. It didn't have to be. But I think that if uh, I was working for Dharma and then, like, I don't know, I was tuning in, whether it was through the sub or whatever like that, and then all of a sudden I hear some French chick distress signal – I'm going to like call to my superiors and say, hey, can we get somebody down to that radio tower? I'm hearing this weird message, you know, going on and on about, you know, death and it's in French. And I don't know. So you're right. It doesn't have to be banned. But you think somebody would have heard that message to say, hey, we need to take a look at the radio tower. See, I don't know, because I have a whole thing with the radio tower. And Jake, I know you and I have talked about this. And I mean, I'll be getting to it soon because it's in season five. When we see that episode where Danielle's team lands on the island and they're hearing the numbers repeated, that's Jorge Garcia's voice. It's never confirmed to be Hurley. It was supposed to be just like a fun little thing that the producers put in there. Personally, I mean, if Wayne can come up with theories, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I can come up with a theory too. I think that it was – I think it was Hurley – so who's to say that there wasn't some sort of directive where, like, you know, don't mess with that tower? You know what I mean? Like, because as much as we, you know, like, and I mean, this episode kind of proves that things, which, you know, it's a chicken or the egg scenario, which came first, did uh, Richard visit Locke, and so therefore Locke went back in time and basically informed Richard to come visit him or was it always in a loop or whatever so I might argue that maybe Hurley or somebody else put out a directive maybe even Faraday somehow put out a directive to the Dharma initiative you know this message has to get out there especially because depending on what Dharma was doing with the sub 
station by that point because we know that the others blocked all communications except for what they wanted, meaning that that distress signal wasn't heard by anybody. So who's to say Dharma didn't do that anyway, where they were just like, oh, somebody took over our radio tower. Maybe she was there, shot them, like in the perimeter, just, again, speculating. And maybe they were just like, well, that's okay. We could just jam that signal anyway. So it could play for as long as it wants, and nobody will ever hear it. Sure. I can kind of roll with a couple. I mean, a couple little holes I see in that one is, yeah, you're right. They could have... uh jammed the signal once they realized it was compromised but then that means kind of hey that means we don't have access to the submarine getting in and out anymore like they're kind of screwing themselves over a little bit there you know if or you know if they want to do that or not sure the other thing would be i can also roll with the whole hurley tells them or somebody tells them hey this message has to get out there I mean, it's a hell of a time gap, though, because Hurley and the gang was there in the 70s. You know, the message plays in the 80s. So that directive would have to sit around for about a decade saying, hey, in the 80s, at some point, the French chick is going to, you know, have this message go out there. Let it continue on. And it would, you know, I mean, could well, happen, sure, absolutely, but, you know. Well, okay, not just because I said the theory, but, like, I'm also going to go with I'm a fan of Back to the Future, and we know for a fact this show is a fan of Back to the Future because, like, Hurley even does, like, the hand thing and references Back to the Future in Season 5. And in the second one, they have that whole Western Union thing where the thing's been sitting around for, like, 100 years and nobody opened that. So if that's possible in fictional worlds, I'm going to go with this directive could sit around for 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that in time traveling shows and things like that, too, where like they have to like this thing has to be in this spot, you know, and then a message will come through it, even though nobody's touched it or whatever like that. Yes, I I get that. Um, Like I said, I I can see it. I I can see it. That's for sure. Your theory there. Yeah. Take that, Wayne. I had a theory. (laughs) <laughs> i like it <laughs> it's the guy approved i was just gonna say that <laughs> sound the sound the cannon it is a cannon. um in flashback we see baby john Locke in an incubator with emily and her mother looking on A nurse greets them and they talk, and the nurse reveals that he's the youngest preemie to ever survive in that hospital and that he's overcome so much. She says John is a fighter. Mrs. Locke is not enthused. The nurse then informs Emily that today she'll finally be able to hold her baby for the very first time. However, she freaks out and begins crying that she can't do it before running away. Mrs. Locke, as she's lighting a cigarette basically asks who she could talk to about putting the baby up for adoption. And after telling Mrs. Locke that she can't smoke there, the nurse points out a man asking if he's the father. And they turn around, and it's Richard Alpert looking amazed. But Mrs. Locke, however, has no idea who he is. And that's the moment that this episode, much like, um, like Pat and I talked about previously in The Man Behind the Curtain and then um, the fact that you know that character of Albert was there, and then we see him at another point, and he looks exactly the same. And this was just another thing of like Richard Albert. He's there in like the fifties, and that's what what drew me to for this to be one of my favorites because it was just more Albert, more mysteries, more who is this guy? I need to know. Yeah, that was like that was like a whoa moment. Yeah, I think this going back to like 
the last episode that we did, it just continues to build that mystery to him where you finally get that payoff later in the show where you actually get his backstory. But the way that they wrote like the mysterious aura around Richard from the beginning was, in my opinion, one of the greatest things that they did in the show because they were able to keep it so different and so mysterious that you were bought into it until you got that payoff. You had no idea why he was the way he was. Absolutely. You know, you see so many different time frames uh, of when things are going on and Albert appearing the same. Uh, it blew my mind almost every time it happened. Yeah. You know, up, up until this point, like, you know, the, last time we'd, we'd seen Richard Alpert was, I don't think we'd, was this like our first time seeing Alpert in season four? Uh, correct? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and like, yeah, so there were, I remember they're reading like a bunch of fan theories about, about Richard and like the fact that he doesn't age and like others were arguing like, no, no, like his, you know, they, they're trying to make him look younger and, you know, in that flashback, you know, like by making his hair long and it's like, no, it's, it's just, you know, it just, I, I, you know, I personally thought up until, up until this point, I thought that was like, there was really nothing to it. I was, it was just like a, a throwaway mystery. And so like when we actually saw Richard Alpert here looking exactly the same and it's, you know, the 1950s, I was like, Oh my gosh, those crazy lost fans were right. <laughs> there is something there. <laughs> and see, like like Pat was saying about the fact that this is, you know, one of the the better mysteries of the show. And again, I would agree because up and uh, up until the episode where we finally got his backstory, Richard was my favorite character. Um, I would say that I was more interested in the Richard story even more than like Jacob not necessarily more than like what is the smoke monster because I think that was like one of the main things that literally everyone who's a fan of the show wanted to know but even as we got more into like who's Jacob this mysterious figure and blah 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 and then we finally like got to see him at the end of season five and we got to learn more about him as season six kind of went along even still my question was always, I want to know more about Richard. What is and who is Richard? I don't know if anybody else felt that way, but that was my own personal thing was he was a better mystery to me than Jacob because we actually got to see him. We got to see him in all these different decades. We didn't just get to hear his name being used and like, oh, nobody's ever met him. And, and we're not even sure if he actually exists because the one time that we think somebody had an interaction with him, one person has no idea what's going on. And the other person thinks that they're crazy, which would be the man behind the curtain again, up until the end of, of season five. But so, yeah, Richard like like pat said you know one of the one of the best things that they did in the series i would agree because i thought that was a much better mystery well personally going on what wayne said with like some of the different fan theories and everything like that i think because of the way that they had everything written surrounding albert that they people were invested without having to be invested he was. It was one of those things where he was there, and when you got the payoff, you got the payoff. People weren't necessarily worried about it. There was different theories, but it, they were able to camouflage it with so much other stuff that when the event finally happened, you were like, oh, man, all right, yeah, I, I can buy into this. I think just the writing around it is part of what made it so perfect for me. I'd agree, yeah. 
And then from a mythology standpoint, too, I mean, again, he's a big mystery. So whenever he's on screen, something mysterious must be happening or it's a big deal if he's going to be on. So you pay more attention. And just the fact that I knew that he had some sort of leadership role with the others. And of course, I was not exactly sure what that role was, but that he was a, a big deal again. So you're, you're paying attention you're seeing him in a bunch of different times, so you know the others at least go back to the 50s. You know, at this point, you don't really know how far back, but at least the 50s, he's around. So, um, yeah, no, I was definitely excited every time uh, he was in an episode. Yeah, definitely, I was invested, like, a lot at, as of this episode. Like, just, yeah, the whole Richard mystery. And I think, I and I know I'm, I'm not the only one, like, at, at that time, the prevailing theory was he's a time traveler. Yeah, I remember seeing that a lot. Yeah. Back on the island, Locke, Hurley, and Ben are once again going through the jungle. Hurley asks why he's even there on this journey with them. And Locke simply says that being able to see the cabin makes him special. Hurley then says his theory as to why only they can see it. They're all crazy. And Locke mentions that they're going to make a pit stop. And he leads Hurley to the mass Dharma Initiative grave. Uh, He informs Hurley that this is the Dharma Initiative. He mentions how they all just vanished one day, and this is where they vanished to. And when Hurley asks what happened to them, Locke simply nods in Ben's direction and says, he did. Oh, and that music that goes with it, that, like, intense, it's like a, it's a revelation. Obviously, we all know it as viewers that, you know, Ben was part of this purge. But, of course, like, it's a revelation to Hurley. And, like, uh, Ben's face, too, just... He's not exactly looking so evil, but he just looks kind of like a, yeah, that was me, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, damn it, he had to call me out on it, like, you know, and then, but I mean, just the intense revelation music to go with it, perfect. Yeah, I think this scene, definitely what Jake was saying about how, how that perfect buildup was, but I also love some of the foreshadowing here, as far as Hurley being special. Um, you know, they're foreshadowing towards where Harley is taken to the end uh, and what his role is on the island. And looking back on it, the foreshadowing from this point forward is a bit more prevalent when it comes to Hurley, where we may not have expected it. Um, you know, but being able to look back in retrospect, you can definitely see it a little bit more. Now, do you do you guys think... Like, with regards to the cabin, do you guys think that only certain people could see it? Do you think it was a thing of being special? Or do you think that it was just a matter of uh, maybe the island? I mean, you know, obviously Wayne doesn't feel the island has the consciousness. But, like, going with that, do we think the island just, like, shows the cabin only to certain people because they're special? Do we think only certain people can see it? Or is it just they, those people, these three especially, just happen to all be in the right place at the right time? Well, later on, we see Alana and her group all being able to see it um, clear as day. Not even like a nighttime scene or anything like that at that point. Um, I don't know. I don't really have a theory, though, on it. My best guess... Okay, this. I mean, this is another mystery that I haven't completely figured out. My best guess is the cabin... Is all it was always there, and the man in black was just hiding it at certain times. But it moves, right? And that's the thing. I remember Kevin said that 
because I didn't get I didn't have the chance to go back and re-listen to the episode that I did with him where we talked really super in depth about the the cabin. But I remember him saying one of the the things that that stuck with me was the fact that the cabin is almost the island's version of the island because as we know the island can appear and and disappear uh in time and in different locations and things like that so the i like the the cabin is basically very similar right so you could say it was there but was it always in the same place i don't think so oh what about the gray ash on the ground then and see, I don't know because I know like that's an old uh, mythological thing. Like I know even in the show Supernatural, they have like the salt circles, you know, and like, oh, demons and all that can't cross the salt circles. And that's like an old school um, mythological thing where like any sort of barrier things couldn't cross it. Like whether even if it was just like a fence, you know, as long as there was something that connected all the way around, either it could be a square, a circle, anything like that, things couldn't cross any sort of barrier. So I think that's where that comes from, but I don't know why it was used in the show at all because I I don't think it ever really added up to anything. Well, the salt circle was also broken at one point. Well, the ash circle was broken at one point, if you remember. Um, Right, but, okay, so, and we know, like, with um, Bram in season six, he pours the ash around himself, and that, like, the smoke monster goes right up to him but can't cross that, that thing. But we also know that it can't cross the sonic fence. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an ash circle it could just be like i said just sort of any boundary or fence sort of thing because realistically with the sonic fence thing it could have just gone over it just as much as in theory it could have gone over the ash circle that's why i don't think the ash circle was as big as like oh why is it ash and why is it this that or the other thing i think it was more just a bear like a a barrier a boundary oh my god i'm starting to connect something here the trees, you know, those trees that like damn near they all hide in every time the monsters the monsters around oh, the banyan almost, trees. Yes. It's almost like in a circular thing, too. Yeah. What if it like crash into that tree or anything because it can't like I said, it can't like go around. Oh, I'm starting to connect dots or something. I'm starting to roll with this. Yeah. See? In my mind. Personally, I, personally, I kind of I I'm with Wayne on this. I honestly feel that it was compromised by the Man in Black, that he was manipulating it. Oh, I'm not I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just saying like he's like the one thing that stuck out to with what Wayne said was the fact that it was always there. He just made it appear and disappear. But like I said, we know because even at one point Hurley in um. Was it in the beginning of season four, I think, when he sees yeah. it and then he turns around and it's on the opposite side of where he was. So it's not necessarily always in the same place. I could totally buy the man in black compromise it. I think that as well. And I think because that's that was the whole um, that's what Hurley saw when it was um, the guy uh, who everybody thought was Locke in like some sort of weird time travel-y thing at the beginning of the season. It was actually just like the prop master. Um but it was, you know, like I could totally buy that all of those, even, you know, Christian at the end is is the man in black. I could totally buy all that. It was just the 
I don't think it's always in the same place. And like I said, that's what um, in a previous episode, Kevin had said kind of how the cabin is sort of like the island on the island because it can appear, disappear and move where it needs to be for whatever reason. I, uh, I don't think that's a far stretch. I, I could definitely buy into that for sure. Or maybe like the image of the cabin can be projected elsewhere because really that only happened that one time. It only, you know, only Hurley saw the, saw the cabin in a different place. Locke saw the cabin, Locke saw it when the cabin was like seemingly disappeared, but only Hurley saw the cabin in a different place. But now where they go to like where Locke goes into the cabin at the end of this, right. And he interacts with Christian and Claire is that supposed to be the same place that Ilana's group finds the cabin later in season six. I would think so. I don't know if it's ever made clear, but yeah, I think that's like a presumptuous. Cause, Cause that was... known. Yeah. Hurley's no longer leading them to the cabin. He's, you know, they're just locks, just following the map. Right. So he's just following it to exactly where the cabin always was. And I'm I'm guessing that's going to lead to one of your other I can't, you know, unanswered theories, Wayne, why is Horace unless it's just the of the thing of it was compromised by the man in black and basically got island mysticism, you know, threaded within it, basically how is the man from the Dharma initiative, how was he able to build this mystery cabin? Okay, this this part I do have a theory for. Oh, let's hear. It. Um, okay, um, okay. So the Horus dream I think was like just constructed by the Man in Black. Um, you know this this kind of goes back you know back to my previous theories where I I think the Man in Black has the ability to implant dreams in people. Um, you know another example that we talked about like a long time ago would have been uh, the question mark dream where like you know, he, he gave Locke dreams of like. You know, Mr. Echo climbing up to the plane, you know, I think that was, you know, I think I said back then that was implanted by the man in black. I think it's the same case here. And see, I, okay, so I'll just say, I'll just say, I think Horace did not build that cabin. I think it's been around a lot longer than that. And the reason I say that is because as of 1867, we know that Jacob is already living in the statue. So I don't think Jacob was living in the cabin I think Jacob lived in the cabin before at some time before that. So the cabin's been around for a long time. So you think at some point Jacob actually did live in the cabin? I think so. I mean I mean it's possible. I mean well I mean why else would uh why else would Ilana know to go there first? That's a great point. Or like it why is. you know, why but you know, or why would why would Jacob? I you know. I, I think Jacob intentionally withheld his location from Ilana, like on off the island. Um, I guess I, I guess it is possible that uh, that Jacob never occupied the cabin. Because that's I what know. I always thought was that it that was like for whatever reason that he never necessarily did. Yeah, but I I don't think it's I don't think it's a horse. I don't I don't think it's Horace's cabin. I think. Um, that that dream was you know, was fabricated by the man in black. Man in black uh, planted the map in 
the body of Horus just so that Locke would find it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can yeah, roll just, with that. Just a theory, you know, I can't, you know, I can't prove it. You know, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a theory I came up with. But you can't prove it, but no one can necessarily disprove it either. Those yeah. are the best parts about Wayne's theories. Is that, <laughs> you know, yeah, he's onto something. Nobody can stop him either, though. That's the thing. You don't like it, but you can't stop it. Like, exactly. Yeah, people have definitely disagreed with most, with a lot of my theories, but they, you know, they can't dis, they can't actually disprove them. Yeah. In flashback, 1961, young Locke is playing backgammon by himself when a girl comes and teases him. However, a woman then enters, directing a man to come talk to Locke, and it's Richard Alpert once again, looking exactly the same. He talks with Locke about backgammon for a moment before telling Locke he runs a school for kids who are extremely special. He wants to show Locke some things. Pulling some objects out of his bag, he notices a picture that Locke has drawn, and it appears to be the smoke monster attacking someone. He then shows Locke several things, including a knife, the book of law, a compass, some sand, uh, I think a baseball glove, and a comic book. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, He tells Locke to let him know which of these objects is his. But Locke is confused, asking if Richard is letting him keep something. But Richard corrects Locke that one of the items already belongs to Locke, and which is it? And after looking at some of the things, he chooses the knife and assures Richard that this is his final answer. But Richard is not happy, takes the knife from the boy, packs up his things, and tells Locke's foster mother that John isn't quite ready for their school yet before leaving. And the foster mother is then upset with Locke, asking what he did. Quick jump back to uh, the picture that John drew. Now, I know none of us have kids uh, that, are, that are talking right here. And I know that you're supposed to be very, like, supportive of kids. And when they, like, come home with, like, a good grade or they come home with a picture they drew, <laughs> you put it up on the fridge. You say, great job. But, like, this is a very depressing picture. It's like, a very disturbing <laughs> picture. It's very disturbing, right? Like, this isn't something you post for others to see. Like, I don't know, too, if, like, if I was that, like, foster mother and I knew I had guests visiting, you know, again, maybe you're proud, you're trying to be somewhat supportive, but, like, I don't want anyone else to see it, because that could scare people away, you know? Like, it scares me just watching it, so, yeah, I don't get why we're publicly posting a man being attacked by, you know, what appears to be black smoke. (laughs) Maybe that's just how the foster mother thought of John. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like oh yeah he's a disturbed kid yeah that's the, you know I'm just, I'm just gonna let people know that yeah <laughs> it's all out in the open this this is john this is what you're gonna get with him it's it's a messed up mind but that's john in a nutshell so for me personally here i i really get into how things are shot and a lot of this stuff in the background um right in the opening scene when richard comes in you can actually see uh black birds like up on the wall much like waltz blackbirds um and i like to really pick up on a lot of that stuff in the background but if you still frame it at the right time there's black birds all over the back of the wall with in the background like a little blurry from where he's sitting um that was something that like i picked up on probably the second or third time that i watched it and i was like oh okay hmm yeah, good catch because um, you know I've seen this episode plenty of times myself, 
And then uh, I was reading Lostpedia, as I do all the time, and right before this, and that's a trivia point, and I go, wow, I I never noticed that. So good job picking it up, because I, and they say the same thing. It's, they're very similar to the birds that uh, Walt talks about or has pictures of or whatever. So yeah, good catch there, because I sure as heck didn't see it. So it had to be pointed out to me by whoever put it on Lostpedia. Okay, did anyone else think that sounded condescending of Jake to be like, good catch there? <laughs> no, it's not. Like, I, good catch, because I, I mean, like, I, I that, like, for, to be able to see that, like, I, I don't know, I, I, it's not condescending at all. It's, it's just good eyes. Like I said, I'm not looking in the background definitely an, enough, apparently, so. Uh, good uh, catch there. Yeah, if you yeah. notice something that even I didn't <laughs> notice. <laughs> oh, I sure shit, no, I sure shit don't catch a lot. Like, that's why I have to read Lost Media. And uh, hats off to you, man. Like, yeah, I'm really, I got really big into like that background stuff in film, and I actually challenged myself. Uh, I think it was like my, th- I'm pretty sure it was my third watch through, um, to like really pay attention to all the subtle things in the background every scene, and kind of get my eyes away from what was distracting me from what was happening in the background, and I picked up on a lot of other things, uh, you know. The last episode that I did with Paul, I picked out a couple things uh, there as well. So uh, definitely something that is very common in this show where if other you know, people that are listening and everything like that, the next time you're doing a, uh, a watch through, I would highly suggest trying to pay attention to some of that stuff in the background to uh, see what you pick up. And that's one of the things that I think this show did. And it's one of the many, many things. And I've talked about this concept a lot within the podcast the fact that this is in my opinion and i think all of us here would agree this is more than just a tv show this is an experience and the fact that you know even how many rewatches later we can still notice new things we can we can notice the attention to detail now obviously we've picked up on a lot of like continuity errors we kind of talked about one earlier but like there are so many specific things that are detailed like that, like, like birds in the background. And realistically, there's somebody in their production office, whether it was the, the prop master or the set designer, maybe the, maybe Damon and Carlton even sent down like a thing where they said, you know, put birds in the background of this scene. But it's just the fact that someone thought enough to do that thinking, Here's a connection. Let's see who finds it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I think when I explain this show to people that um, haven't watched it before, I I tend to tell people that this show really did change the course of television. Uh, TV is not was never shot like this before it happened for the most part, and it really changed the course of where everything is at now. And you see the shades of it in so much writing and so many new productions yeah no i would i would agree with that and i just had um sort of this conversation as i said i I recorded uh one episode or one or two episodes out of order and i had this conversation with someone um for one that takes place at the beginning of season five and i asked if the one of the problems with going back and watching this show with certain episodes is do certain things become 
cheesy. And now, obviously, anybody listening to this will then hear this discussion in a few episodes from now. But the question was, do certain things seem cheesier or do they seem TV or do they seem dated in comparison to a show like a Game of Thrones, which kind of took what Lost did. And obviously, a lot of shows did this, but they took what Lost did and they basically put it on steroids, you know, and it's it's shot from what I've seen because I don't watch that show, but it's shot beautifully. It's there's so much attention to detail, even a show like The Walking Dead or Breaking Bad or something like that, where they were just these these critically acclaimed shows that in certain ways you can you can all trace them back to Lost and like you said Pat the fact that Lost changed television so much and it was basically like a you know does Lost almost lose something for a regular viewer like obviously we appreciate it and we can look at it from that kind of production standpoint and we can look and go oh it's influenced so many things but the casual viewer like anyone who hasn't seen the show who we, you know, even if they watch it, they're not going to get into it nearly as much as we do. Does it lose something because it's kind of dated in certain ways? I mean, I, I think the argument can for sure be made. Obviously, that, that doesn't, like you said, it doesn't quite uh, happen with us because we've been in it, especially, you know, from watching it from the beginning. Um, but, yeah, I could definitely see it because so many other shows do it. I mean, even shows like Stranger Things, they're... Um, you know, I give them a lot of props for a lot of their attention to detail and stuff like that and the background stuff with that as well. Uh, but, you know, for me as a fan, it's nice to know that a lot of it stemmed from this. Absolutely. Back on the island in the present, Locke is searching through the bodies in the pit. Hurley asks Ben if this is where he shot Locke, and Ben confirms, saying he was standing right about where Hurley stands now, and he also says that he should have known it was pointless back then. And Hurley asks him about killing all these other people, but Ben says he didn't do it. He says the others did it, but it wasn't his decision. Hurley asks about being the leader, but Ben mentions that he wasn't always the leader. Locke then finds a body with the name tag that says Horace and finds the blueprints for the cabin inside its pockets. And upon Hurley asking, Locke confirms he thinks that he found what he was looking for. Yeah, so this would be uh, the map that I believe was just planted there by the man in black. Okay. I can I mean, he see wanted, that, yeah. Yeah, because, like, you know, the man in black wanted Locke to find the cabin so that he could appear there as Christian and, you know, tell them to move the island. Now, Pat, did we talk about it in the episode? Maybe, I don't know if I even talked about it, maybe with, with Kevin when I did the ep- that episode a few things later for the beginning of season four. Did, has it ever been established how, like, Hurley just happened upon the cabin, right? But was it ever established how Ben knew? Because Ben knew nothing about Jacob. Like, how did Ben know to lead Locke directly to this place and basically try to pull this con on him of, oh, yes, this is Jacob sitting here in this chair? I don't think that we touched on that specifically. Um, but it is a great talking point and I'm kind of interested to see what, what everyone has to say about it. I think Ben at some point in the past that we never saw did talk with someone that I'm going to say again, was the man in black appearing as somebody claiming to represent Jacob and probably told him a bunch of things, including where the cabin is, 
um, you know, how to how to summon the smoke monster, you know, underneath that, uh, you know, that secret room. Uh, so I think you know, Ben Ben knew a bunch of things somehow, and I think it's because the man in black appeared to him as somebody and just basically told him a bunch of stuff. But now, okay, I can completely go with that. Why does he then still cons- like continuously bow to Richard's everything of like when you know, oh, I'm you know. I'm going to take these names to Jacob and then Jacob's going to bring back a list and you're going to give out the list because everybody thinks you're the leader in theory or whatever. Why didn't he ever, maybe he did, I don't know, but why didn't he ever like throw it in, in Richard's face of like, you know what, Richard, I know things too. I can summon the smoke monster. I know where the cabin is. Like, you know what I mean? Like I I would have loved to see that scene. I don't think he necessarily like, he doesn't like confirm necessarily that Richard was, the only messenger between Ben and Jacob. It could have been like, Jake, you know, Ben, Ben could have like seen all these, these people like, you know, Richard and whoever else are speaking for Jacob. And of course, you know, all the time, you know, we know Ben is getting frustrated that, you know, that he's, he himself isn't allowed to see Jacob. And yet there's like, you know, Jacob is sent, supposedly sending multiple representatives to, you know, to give Ben his orders. But that's what I'm saying. If if he, in theory, knows these these things, where the cabin is, how to summon the smoke monster, anything like that, that that the man in black could have told him, like he would have, I, at least me, and I, I like to think that I'm similar to Ben in in a lot of ways. That's why he's one of my favorites. I would I would definitely at some point kind of throw that in somebody's face, where it's like, you know what, I know things too. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, unless or, it's just, like, Richard wasn't like, that. so what? I know those things, too. That doesn't make you, like, better, better. It's not, you know, there are still things you don't know, or Jacob's still not going to see you, whoop-de-doo. Like. But then wouldn't yeah. Richard have questioned about the cabin if he knows that that's not where Jacob is? Well, it could have, you know, it, this, you know, this random, random person could have just told Ben, well, don't tell this to Richard. You know, I'm, you know, Jacob tells me certain things. He tells Richard certain things. I suppose. I think, yeah, I could see it going that way. I think part of what makes Ben Ben is the fact that he's also a tactician, and there's stuff that he chooses not to indulge in simply for when it needs to be done. He has it. Um, you know, I'm sure that there was other times he would have wanted to summon the smoke monster, but it wasn't until that point where he truly needed it. Um, and I think that that's kind of what made him him in certain ways okay back on the freighter kimi is demanding galt's key frank comes in saying that the man kimi brought back just died and how the crew wants answers kimi says he's dealing with it and to go gas up the helicopter because they're going back and as frank leaves kimi turns his attention back to captain galt Galt tries talking him out of whatever he's thinking, justifying that he may be going through the same sickness as Regina and some of the others, but Kimi is only interested in the key, and Galt argues that it's not protocol. There are two keys for a reason. They need to open the safe together. But by this time, Kimi has pulled the key straight from Galt and opens the safe, arguing that they're both in the same room. And he informs Galt that this is the secondary protocol. It shows where Linus is going, and they're going to try and uh, try to get him, like to cut him off there. Kimi tells how Widmore knew there may be risks, and he's supposed to torch the island. 
Galt questions this, but Kimi ultimately tells him to simply go clean the gun. Yeah, so we can see a, a pretty decent shot of the uh, Orchid logo when he's looking through the secondary protocol. So I was thinking about it. I'm like, okay, so you know, Ben does know about the Orchid Station. Widmore obviously spending plenty of time on the island. He knew about it. But does, was Widmore a little smarter than Ben? Because Widmore connected the dots that, oh, this is where Ben's going to go. But Ben hasn't connected like that kind of dot yet that this is where we should go. Now he's going to get pushed in that direction because he's going to hear that they need to move the island. And then Ben's going to go, oh, well, I guess we got to go to Orchid then to do that. Um, but then Pat just kind of threw out that theory of, you know, Ben only playing the cards when he really, really needs to. And so that just got me like I just wrote that quick note next to mine that says, oh, well, maybe this is one of those times like Pat had mentioned that, you know, Ben was kind of withholding that last little connection there until well, the right time well yeah because he knew because he said like when uh you know in the next episode when uh because Locke says you know oh we have to move the island and ben's like well i'm gonna do it and he's like oh well i was told that i have to do it and he's like yeah but do you know how to john he's like i know how to do it like it's it's clearly for me to do right would... now, there's no doubt that i think ben all ben knows what the Oregon station does what it is where where it's at all that good stuff but like Widmore pretty much jumped to the conclusion that this is where Ben's going to go before Ben jumped to the conclusion of that's where I'm going to go. Well, see, that leads into something that I've brought up over the last few episodes, even if they haven't officially gone out by the time that this recording has happened. But it's the concept of when did Jacob visit Charles Widmore? Was it... Uh before the oceanic six was it after the oceanic six when did he tell like when did he come to him and tell him kind of you know you need to you need to help me because all of this is finally coming to an end at some point like very soon well definitely after this because he said so said it was after the oceanic six left the island did he yeah, I, I actually, yeah, I just recently rewatched that where he explained that. Okay. So he, yeah, came to visit short, you know, shortly after. I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember his exact words. It was either shortly after they left the island or shortly after you left the island. But yeah, it was definitely after this point. Okay. So yeah, Woodward, Woodward's not working for Jacob at this point. Okay. Then yeah, I would go with Pat's thing of you know, he just knew, but yeah, maybe maybe Woodmore connected those dots early. I just don't get why there why there are two keys that have to open the safe if if Woodmore wants the wants the staff. I mean, isn't isn't that we're assuming that Woodmore wants Kimi to do what he's going to do? Yes. I, I mean, you're right. It's weird that it has to be behind two keys. Or I mean, I think even Woodmore was probably like, eh, if you really don't have to go to the Orchid Station, don't. You know, like if they could have took Ben back at the barracks and everything, then hey, all is well. You don't have to go do a secondary protocol. Why it had to be a little more protected, I'm not sure, but it was the secondary protocol for a reason because you really don't have to look at this unless you have to look at this. Well, two things. One, the plan is to torch the island, right? Well, Widmore wouldn't necessarily want that because he wants to return to the island. 
So he, you know, that is like a last resort sort of thing. But the fact that it's two keys, that just kind of reminds me of like all those old like government things with like um, like the military codes and all that, where it's like, oh, these all these generals have like a piece of it and they all need to provide them like to the president before he can launch, you know, the nukes and things like that, where it's yeah, like technically, you know, you would think whoever's in charge of whatever country, whether it be the United States or any other country, that the top person would have all that stuff. But for whatever reason, in film and television, they always portray it as like each person has a little piece of the thing because they all need to sort of be in agreement of, you know, okay, is this what we're going to do? Yes, this is what we're going to do. So that's why I, that's that was my thought. It's strange that the captain would, would have one of the keys because like, I don't – I mean, how how much is the captain really involved in uh, uh, in Widmore's mission, other than just like you know, being the captain of the boat? Well, he's the one that informed Saeed and Desmond as to the, as to the fact that it is Widmore. He's the one who had possession of the black box, right? Uh, yeah, but he was wrong. Well, I yeah, mean, obviously, but he that I mean, that does mean that he's you know more involved, I think, than than he lets on. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not the guy. You're the guy. So, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, Captain Gall obviously didn't know what the what the plan was going to be. You know, what the second secondary protocol was going to be. And so, like, what? I guess. I guess my question is like, what? What would prompt Captain Gall to say, "Oh, th- it's time to use the key." It would have to be something extreme, I think, because he seems like yeah. a relatively calm guy. Yeah. Like, unless you push that button, you know? And I think he wouldn't even be involved in this at all if he knew everything about about Charles Whitmore. Oh, probably not. Yeah. Elsewhere on the boat, the dead man from Kimi's team is being carried away. Said and Desmond both realize that gunshots didn't do that. Galt then emerges to let Omar know that Kimi wants to see him. And Omar questions this, but Galt tells him that he'll watch Desmond and Saeed. And as Omar is walking away, he receives the Morse code message from a few episodes ago on the phone. And Galt then tells Saeed and Desmond that he left a supply of food for them in a pantry below the galley. Michael isn't dead, but that's why they need to hide before Kimi comes back. But Saeed doesn't want to hide. He wants the small boat, the Zodiac. He wants to start shuttling people off the island. And Galt agrees, telling them to meet him in 10 minutes. This is one of those huge, um, um, like, time travel things. You know, the discrepancy between island time and boat time. Uh, with the whole Morse code thing. Yeah, it actually took me until like a few a few more rewatches to realize, oh, that's the Morse code that uh, that Faraday sent. Oh, really? Yeah, it, it didn't it didn't uh, didn't click right away for me. <laughs> hmm. Back with Locke, him, Hurley, and Ben are still making their way to the cabin, and Locke tells Hurley that he should probably leave. He isn't really needed anymore, and he's sorry that he forced Hurley at gunpoint. Hurley is upset, but Locke thought he'd want to leave. But Hurley doesn't want to go in the jungle at night. He decides to stay with them. Ben looks at Locke as Hurley keeps walking, and Ben mentions to Locke that he did good by making Hurley think staying was his idea. But Locke is quick to point out that he's not Ben, and Ben is just as quick to point out that he's certainly not. I love that moment. Yes. 
I think, and I, I don't think there's a single person who's been on this show or a single person who's ever watched Lost who doesn't think that Terry O'Quinn and Michael Emerson are two of the best actors and that some of their best scenes are ones that they shared together. Absolutely. And even the two actors themselves, you know, when asked about, like, who is their favorite to work with or who would they love to continue to work with, I mean, they pretty much each set each other every time. I know we talked about it, but there was that uh, that idea that that concept of the show that uh, Terry O'Quinn and Michael Emerson were going to play um, agents or something. They were retired, and they got like called back in, or they had to start like doing like uh, uh, solving crimes or something like that. And I think that would have been such a fantastic show. Like, don't get me wrong, I love Person of Interest. I'm glad Michael Emerson was involved in it. He did fantastic, but I. I think I would have rather have seen Terry O'Quinn and Michael Emerson's show. See, I was never a big person of interest fan, so I definitely would have liked to see the Terry O'Quinn, Michael Emerson show. Did you give person of interest a shot or like how much? I watched the first half of the first season. Then I fell off because I just got out of TV for a little while at that point. And then I went back and tried to rewatch it, and I couldn't get past, like, the third or fourth episode of the first season because I was like, why did this interest me in the first place? I don't get it. Oh, as Paul Casey would say, you're in for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That guy is not always right about everything. That's, that's true. <laughs> you didn't have to agree so quickly. <laughs> In flashback, high school Locke is stuffed into a locker begging to get out. Finally, a teacher comes to get him. Everyone, including the cheerleaders, is laughing at him. Moments later, in an office, the teacher is asking Locke to talk about it, but Locke doesn't want to. He then tells Locke that a man named Dr. Alpert with Middleos Laboratories from Portland wants Locke for his camp during the summer. But Locke is not interested in science camp. He says he's more interested in boxing and fishing and cars and sports. The teacher then explains how this is a great opportunity, but Locke insists that this is why he gets stuffed into lockers. The teacher then tells him that even though he doesn't want to be a scientist, that's basically what he's going to end up being. He isn't the quarterback nor a superhero. And teenage Locke then says, don't tell me what I can't do before leaving the room. It's interesting how um, Richard Alpert like does like an entirely different recruiting attempt at, at this point in, in, in Locke's life than he did when, he, when Locke was a lot younger. As a summer camp instead of a school? Well, yeah, yeah, I, found, I, mean, like, I found that really interesting. Yeah. Well, I, well, I mean, the part of it is like I, I didn't entirely understand like the, the first encounter like, you know, with the presenting, you know, the child Locke with all these different objects and I mean, I didn't didn't really exactly know like what Richard was was looking for. The compass. Well, that, well no, he because I think he they, he technically did pick the compass, right? Like he picked uh, the compass, the little bottle of sand grain, whatever it might be, and then the knife as well. And that seemed to be like the killer. Like he got two yeah. out of three, and it looked like actually he really wanted Locke to pick the book of law, which, as Wayne said, I don't know why. I mean, this whole process, that's like picking the next Dalai Lama. 
That's like exactly that's... what I was going to say next was, yeah. yeah. But, uh, no, I, th- I think it was 100% the compass because that's the thing that he gave, that Locke gave to Richard. So then Richard would, of course, then take it to Locke and be like, which of these things already belongs to you? If he thinks that Locke is so special, especially because he was able to pinpoint his exact birth, which Richard was then able to go see. So he does think that Locke is special. So that's why he would have the compass mixed in there. And that's why I think, yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely see where you're going. Like, you know, and I, I know Lostpedia is Lostpedia. It's not like a definite thing, but it, it says that John immediately claims the container inspects and claims the compass. He starts towards the book of laws, which Richard looks hopeful, but instead picks up the knife. That's when Richard gets angry and so on and so forth. And I, I looked at it as he was claiming those things too. Like he moved them and brought them aside I thought so, too, yeah. I mean, the grain of sand, uh, you know, we were kind of talking about the grain of whatever, you know, the whatever they were. I mean, we were talking about kind of the ash, and, you know, we eventually see later on they kind of collect that stuff and use it. And so I can see why that would be a correct answer. That definitely has something to do with island mythology somehow, some way. The compass, obviously, as you just mentioned, super, super important. And I'm surprised the knife is the wrong answer, but apparently it is. You know, I'm not sure what the right answer was and why, but you're right. The whole process itself is an extreme mystery, but. Oh, see, I was, I, this, my thought was not similar to what you guys are saying at all. Like you think that he picked, I I, I always thought that little vial was sand. So, so I'm just going to say sand. Like sure. you thought because he was putting them like off to the side. I thought he was discarding those things. He was saying, "Oh, is it this? No, it's not this. Is it the compass? No, it's not the compass." And but then he, he picked up discard anything else though. Like he because he didn't because he didn't off. look at them though. So I think he looked at those going, "Oh, does this be-? like for whatever reason in the kid's mind like, oh, does this belong to me? No." And that's when he, and then he finally got the knife, and then he was like, it's this one. It's the knife that belongs to me. He didn't even need to look at the comic book. He didn't even need to look at the baseball glove, nor the the book of law. I think he, I think maybe he had like an inkling or something, or maybe he just wanted to, to get a better look at the other things. But I, I always took him setting them off to be like, it's, it's for sure not these things. Maybe it could have been, but it's not. It's the knife. That's what that's how I always took it was these like those other things, the baseball glove and all that. Like he didn't even care about those, at least the sand and the compass. He wanted to get a better look at, but then he chose the knife. And that was when Richard was like, nope, you picked the wrong thing. I didn't I didn't take it as he was taking the sand and the compass and the knife. I'm not entirely sure if he if he if he either chose them or discarded them. I think he was just examining them. I mean, he he was like grabbing them and kind of like sliding them toward himself and so he didn't like just say like you know this you know definitely this or definitely this i think he was like considering them and that kind of you know richard was kind of hopeful you know watching that but then as soon as he picked up he like picked up the knife he didn't pick up the other objects he did like picked up the knife and looked at it and you gave it a really hard look and then richard's like you know well the knife isn't what i was looking for so i think i think that that was like why that was, that was what prompted Richard to ask, do you really think the knife belongs to you? Yeah, and to kind of back up what you guys are saying, too, like now the actual Lostpedia article on the test itself, it says young John selected the container and the compass before settling upon the knife. 
So you're, I mean, that would back up definitely what you guys are saying is that he selected them, brought them kind of aside, but settled means to me kind of means like, this is my final decision. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think it was, but I think it was supposed to be the compass. I totally know what you're talking about with the book of law thing. And I don't know why that was, but I definitely think that it was obvious. I, I think it's obvious that it was supposed to be the compass because of the whole loop that gets developed later in season five. Yeah, I can roll yeah. with that. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I think I think it was supposed to be the compass. I think Richard was expecting more of like an immediate definitive answer where he just grabbed it and was like, this is mine. You know, when he took his time and then settled on the knife, I think it kind of took him back a little bit. Yeah. But, yeah. But given all that, that brings us back to the scene we're talking about now, which is like, you know, the high school scene. What you know? What is Richard's purpose? With you know, with the whole you know, uh, the science camp. What, what was he planning to do? Well, I think there was a few things that like. So one, the locker thing. When you look at the pictures in the locker, and I had to do a lot of digging to actually figure out what it was. Obviously, one is Geronimo Jackson that you can kind of see, but above that, there's like a grade picture, and there's an. Ex- uh, when I did like some digging, that was like an explorer, which I found like really cool as like a connection to Locke and, you know, his walkabout and everything like that, which is something else that's brought up in this episode. But, uh, there's also an, uh, I believe, what was the name of the science camp? Uh, yeah. Middleos laboratories is the name that he uses, which is also the thing from when he, uh, interacted with Juliet. Yeah. And that's a, uh, an algorithm, I believe. An anagram for lost anagram. Time. That's what I meant. Yes, yeah. it's an anagram. So I, I'm not sure what the play was there from Richard, but I think it was just another attempt to kind of put him through another test and have have the opportunity more than anything else. And I think a science camp to a high school student sounds better than a school for gifted children. Yeah, I, I think Richard was hoping that Locke had really developed a a love for science or uh, a passion or at least an interest enough to be like, yeah, you know what? Why not check out a, a science cam? Yeah. Like, again, like I said, especially more than, you know, cause like what high schooler, yeah, it's, it's great to be told you're smart and everything, but I don't necessarily think that a high schooler would be uh, super thrilled to be like oh great i'm going to genius school yeah i kind of feel like it was maybe forced upon him like by the teacher the teacher was kind of pushing him to science which is why i think it's so funny with the man of science man of faith thing in which direction that lock goes you know going back to this scene i think it's kind of telling yeah so i think it was just like richard's way of like hoping Locke is going to say, ooh, yes, science cap, and then go there, and then at that point, Richard will put him, put him through some more tests. Personally, I think that that's what the play was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah, okay, makes sense. Now, okay, so, Wayne, we're, we're a good chunk of the way through the episode. I know you have these theories that you said weren't necessarily answered, and I'm not saying that they're definitively answered, but are there any that you've had that we haven't covered? <laughs> um, no, I think we, we kind of, uh, uh, as far as at this point in the episode, um, 
Yeah, there are more things I can think of like that we'll probably be getting to later on. But you know, thus far, I don't feel like we've skipped over anything important. Okay. All right. Well, this was I, again. I I know this was one that you had uh, requested, and and especially hearing that you know there were a lot of things. And again, I'm not saying that we're like giving any definitive answers or anything, but um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we're we're giving everything its due. <laughs> Back on the freighter in the present. Frank lets Michael out asking why Michael never revealed the truth. He told, uh, he, he talks about the fact that, you know, he had all these theories about 815 and everything, but Michael says he didn't know if Frank could be trusted because Frank's boss put the plane there. And Frank admits that that's a crazy theory, even for him. Michael then begs Frank to not fly Kimi back because he's going to kill everyone on the Island. And he knows what the weight of having, you know, people die on your conscience feels like. As they get into the hall, they see Omar, and Frank tells him that Michael, or he's taking Michael to the engine room. I love that it's how, how it's like everybody who works for Widmore thinks like Widmore's like this great guy, and it's like you know the idea that Widmore would have would have put the fake plane down there is like seems so ridiculous to to these people. Elsewhere with the Zodiac, Galt is telling Said and Desmond the exact bearing to take, and Faraday says that it has to be that exact bearing. He also says that he'll tell Kimi that the men stole the boat if he asks. But Desmond tells Saeed that he's not going. He finally got off that island and he's never going back. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Saeed then mentions that he'll be back soon with the first group before he sets off. I love the fact that that Galt is just like, well, yeah, I'm going to tell him you stole it. So... (laughs) Later that night with Locke, Ben, and Hurley, Locke says that They don't have that much further to go. And Ben asks him about the cabin moving, but Locke says it won't have moved because he was instructed that it would be here. Ben then says that he was told a lot of things. He was chosen, special, yet ended up with a tumor and Alex's blood on his hands. And Locke says that he's sorry that those things happened to Ben, but Ben says they only happened because it was his destiny. But John will soon understand the negatives of destiny. And it's, again, one of my absolute favorite Ben quotes. Quote, because destiny, John, is a fickle bitch, unquote. People love that line. People really do love that line. I think it's I, yeah. too. I wrote top tier Ben line. Yeah. yeah. But and I actually saw that line quoted at the beginning of a Star Trek novel that I just recently read. Really? <laughs> yeah. It was just randomly inserted there. Wow. Did it give credit? Like, did it say, like, Benjamin Linus? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Wow. That's crazy. Uh, Hurley then spots the cabin. In flashback, not long after Locke was paralyzed, he's in physical therapy. An orderly comes to take him. It's Matthew Abaddon from the beginning of this season. Uh, He's telling Locke to not give up, but Locke says that if he read his file, there's a 98% chance that he'll never get feeling in his legs. But Abaddon says that he knows this. He read his file. Locke survived an eight-story drop, and that's a miracle. He then asks Locke if he believes in miracles, but he says he doesn't. And Abaddon says that one happened to him once, but Locke just wants to go to his room. Abaddon then suggests a walkabout, a journey of self-discovery in the Australian outback, but Locke says that he can't. Abaddon says he isn't so sure. His walkabout made him change his whole perspective. He started out as one thing and came back as something completely different, and Locke then insults him 
that fact that he's just an orderly, but Abaddon mentions that he's much more than that, and he tells Locke that he'll change his mind, and when he does, Locke will owe Abaddon a favor. Oh boy, <laughs> Matthew Abaddon. Uh, lots of unanswered questions with that guy. Um, First of all, great actor, fantastic yeah, in The Wire, that's... fantastic in Fringe. Just over, like he is one of the best. Like could be creepy, but ends up being like the good guy guys ever. Yeah, you know, I'm, and I'm a huge fan of Fringe. Um, you know, I think you know Lance Reddick is great in that. Uh, and so, as far as I know, Fringe started like uh, like I think fall of 2008, which is like right after season four of Lost. And I kind of think that, you know, if if it wasn't for Friend, Lance Reddick might have been more available to make more appearances on Lost as Abaddon, and we might have had gotten more of Abaddon's backstory. Yeah, but I wouldn't. As I agree, and I remember all of that happening because, unlike Lost, I did start Fringe from the very beginning, and I'm kind of act as much as I think you know more Abaddon would have been great. I don't think anybody else could have played that part on Fringe. Oh yeah, I agree with that. Yep. As far as Abaddon, though, I kind of, I kind of wonder, like, okay, so we we learn more about him in season five, like, you know, at his brief appearance, we know he works for Charles Widmore. However, I don't, I'm not entirely convinced that he worked for Widmore at this point in, in where he appears. Cause you know, this is, you know, this is Locke's flashback. It's like, you know, at least four years before Oceanic Gate 15. And, you know, here he goes talking about, you know, he went on a walkabout and he discovered, you know, who he really was. So it kind of makes me wonder like, you know, what, you know, what is, you know, what is Abaddon, Abaddon's backstory? And, you know, how, and at what point did he hook up with Woodmore and stuff like that? So who do you think he worked for at this point? Or was he just a regular guy? I think he probably had some connection with the island. I don't know exactly what connection it was. Well, see, that makes me think that he may have worked for Woodmore because as we know, there are others who are off the island like at the beginning of season five, we see Jill, the woman who works in like the meat, um, the, like the butcher shop and stuff. So like we know that that the others are like they have spots off the island as well, like they're on assignment or whatever. So that makes me think that maybe he was an other, but he was like a, a loyal to Widmore other. You know what I mean? But does did Widmore at that point? have a reason to want Locke to come to the island? He knew about Locke from the past, and this is something that that Liam and I have talked about quite a bit in regards to the journal and the the cyclical thing, because Widmore saw Locke in the 50s. So he knew that eventually Locke had to get to the island to go back in time so that young Widmore could see him in the 50s. So, and I've, I brought this up in, in another episode as well, where it's like, did he, like with regards to hiring like Charlotte and, and Miles and things like that, because he ran into them in the past. So was he looking for people with special skills or was it again, a chicken or the egg scenario where it was just like, well, I've seen this, so I have to help make it happen because it happens because I know, cause I lived it sort of thing. Hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know, because I don't know, like, what his... I, c- I could definitely see Eloise doing something like that, because, like, you know, she was a huge believer in Destiny. I'm not entirely sure if uh, if both Widmore and, uh, and Eloise were both on the same page about that. Well, who's to say Abaddon wasn't working for her, even, at this point? Oh, yeah, you could, could, could definitely have been. Anyone else have any thoughts? Um, I'm uh, I'm at a loss with him at this at this point. Yeah, I'm up for anything. I'll... It's better than prevailing theories at back then, which is like this is an older Walt. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! The yeah, good old... I'm... sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just gonna say the good old days of of you know everybody's a time traveler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh I'm more inclined to believe that he has some kind of connection with the island, whether that be through Eloise or whatever. He has obviously has some kind of connection. I I would probably say maybe more Eloise than anything else. Okay. Back on the freighter in the present, Kimi's team loads up as Desmond watches them. Omar then speaks to the doctor, telling him that he got a message before asking why the doctor is dead. And he just says, crazy, right? Now, I just always get this read on Omar that he had Kimi not killed the doctor. He was planning on killing the doctor. You think? Why? I don't know. I don't know why. There is no there is no reason why other than just that guy. The, the actor whose name escapes me right now, who plays Omar, who I've seen in many things. I just, I don't know, just his delivery on it where he's just like, yeah, that is kind of crazy, right? As if to be like, and yeah, I'm going to make it come true, you know? <laughs> like, I don't know why. That's just, that's how I always interpreted that. I can I can definitely see it the way he played that scene. I just don't know, like, you know, within, like, the, the, the story, like, why Omar would would be planning to kill the doctor. Yeah, there's no motivation for it at all. Other than just, for some reason, they saw it, and so he was just like, well, guess I gotta make it happen now. <laughs> uh, Kimi uh, calls for everything to be packed up. Frank asks what it's all for, but Kimi insists that he just start up the helicopter. Frank tra- uh, tries arguing that he wasn't hired for this. He was hired to shuttle scientists. And after some back and forth, Kimi then kills the doctor and dumps him overboard. He uses this to motivate Frank. He says that he'll keep killing, and it's on Frank to stop it. A gunshot then goes off. It's Galt telling Kimi he fixed his gun and to stand down or he'll shoot. Kimi shows them what we f- eventually find out is the dead man's trigger. It always looks like a guitar tuner to me, though. Uh, isn't, is that what it is? I don't know. It's pro it may, it may be, but what I, I think always it, think of. It is like, I forgot who I, where I was reading it or something like that, but somebody was like, yeah, that is the worst prop I've ever seen. Cause they think it's a tuner. And now I have to put that up. It, it for sure looks like a tuner. Yeah. Okay. As long as I'm not the only one who thinks this, yeah, cause no. I've never talked about that with anybody else, but okay. Okay, yep. The prop used to create this device is very similar to a Korg digital guitar tuner. Yep, there you go. All right. Thank goodness I'm not alone in that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as Galt questions what it is, Kimi takes Omar's gun and shoots Galt. 
He then gets Frank's attention again, pressuring him into flying, and Frank finally agrees. Kimi tells his men to gather the rest of the stuff and to move out. Uh, Frank gets the helicopter running. He then turns on a sat phone, wraps it, and hides it, and they take off. Back at the beach with Jack's group, Juliet is yelling at Jack for moving so soon after his surgery. She even comments that doctors make the worst patients. They then hear the helicopter overhead and see something fall from it. The something destroys one of the tents, which I believe Lostpedia says is Claire's tent, by the way. It is. Yeah. 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 They then run over to it as it's beeping. They find the sat phone, and Jack thinks that they should probably follow them. And I'm thinking, I was thinking about it just as I'm reading this, and I think I finally know another reason that uh, Wayne likes this episode so much. Kate is almost non existent. <laughs> yes. I was just thinking the same no thing. Speak lines. Hashtag yeah. non Kate Bale. Kate's success. She doesn't speak. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about that as, as you were coming to that. I, I It didn't even occur to me as I was re watching it earlier. But yeah, I just, I just thought of that just now. <laughs> um. Outside the cabin, with Locke, Hurley, and Ben, they decide who's going in. Ben doesn't want to go in, believing the island wanted him to get sick and Locke to get better. It's John's turn now. Hurley is also on board with Locke going in by himself, obviously. Locke then takes a lantern, lights it, and enters. He sees a figure sitting in a chair across the room. He asks if this is Jacob, but the man only says he can speak on Jacob's behalf. It's then revealed to be Christian, and he introduces himself. Uh, they then have an exchange where we find uh, Locke says that he's there or that he's chosen. He's been chosen to be there and Christian agrees. He hears another noise and looks and sees Claire in a corner. She mentions that she's with Christian. When Locke asks where Aaron is, Christian says that Aaron is where Aaron needs to be and to not tell anyone that he saw Claire there. Locke then starts to question, but Christian tells him there's no time. He should just ask the one question that matters, and Locke asks how he can save the island. We then cut to outside the cabin. Hurley's going to eat an Apollo bar and offers some to Ben, who takes it. Really nice moment between those two. Locke then well, comes... Also, it, it ties into uh, what Pat mentioned earlier with foreshadowing for the future, like how uh, Ben and Hurley are going to be, you know number one and number two eventually and so like i think this is like the first real like they're being all buddy buddy and having this cute moment yeah and there's actually a few of those like even in the even in the the next one like i think ben offers him like the stale old crackers you know yes (laughs) i think he just seems like he passes it to hurley because hurley's the big guy he'll eat this (laughs) i i personally believe that this is the thought process in the first episode where they really put together how they were going to finish the show that who, who was going to take over. This is where like the decision was made and they were running with this because you see the foreshadowing here and it continues throughout, you know, the rest of the last two seasons. Hmm. So I, I believe that when this was being written, this is when they started to, formulate their end game of of who was taking over at the end i could see that being the case i don't know because i'm 
See, that's where I get into, like, you know, how much did they know? And I just spoke about this. I don't even know who because I've I've been doing so many of these lately. Uh, I just spoke about that. Maybe it was even Wayne the other day where I said about the fact that um, even at one point we know that uh, it's been said Mr. Echo was supposed to play a larger part in the series. So, like, you know, and, and many people, and I think Jake and I have spoken about it before, where people think that um, the Ben character being expanded and kind of being Locke's... Uh, you know, the one that butts heads with Locke all the time about kind of control of the island and, and testing his faith and stuff like that. And, and I, I think that that was to sort of make up for Echo, the fact that yeah. Echo wasn't there. Yeah. And uh, they've said, like, they saw, they knew what the final, like, bits were of the show. It was just a matter of things like that, like Echo leaving. They had to, like, readjust some things. So... I'm I I'm hesitant to I'm not saying that I disagree but I'm hesitant to agree because I would like to think that they had that ending part of Hurley planned in advance but it would make sense if they said oh yes here is where they they started to plan that I would like to give them more credit than that though personally Yeah I think maybe not the planning part of it but this for sure where they set it off into motion um, I do agree as far as like echo and everything like that and the situation changing, but, um, you know, this is obviously where I think it really started to like take shape that, you know, looking back on it, that this is what it, what it became makes a lot of sense. Um, you yeah. know, they may, they may have had a different plan and then changed the plan to move it over to make sense, obviously with the absence of echo. Um, but this is to me like where, uh, everything starts to formulate towards that. And, you know, you kind of get that U-turn coming. Yeah, I think so. Then the final moment happens. Locke comes up to the future, number one and number two, telling them he got the info, quote, he wants us to move the island. And that ends the recap portion of this episode. I, I just remember, like, I think my my jaw was literally open the first time I watched this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't know where the show was going to go now. Like, that threw me for a curve. I, I was, like, moving the island. I'm like, figuratively, literally, like, what what is going to happen now? See, now, I had one thing that you guys didn't have when I was watching this was because I had the very next episode, well, the three-part season finale, readily available and the only downside to that was this episode as we talked about while we were uh, discussing the whole thing it set up so much there was so much mythology there was just there this episode was just chock full of basically everything that I wanted in a lost episode and then that that cliffhanger when he wants us to move the island and I'm like okay bring on like oh great three-part finale this is gonna be great but then that was it that was the last thing i had until the season five premiere just like everybody else and so that bummed me out because i was like oh great i get to find out what all of this means and then as we know 
and you know people will hear the thoughts on on the season four finale from several different people that's probably just as big or even bigger of a cliffhanger than this cliffhanger which is like makes you want to go to the next episode obviously a season finale cliffhanger makes you want to go to the next episode for sure so again i i had the jaw-dropping moment but i did have the well i can just quickly move on to the next one (laughs) i remember like wayne said i i remember my reaction when it first happened and i remember calling out of work the next week to because i had recorded it and i was dead set on re-watching that episode you know and i was like i was like i i had like requested off every so that i wasn't working throughout any of lost and then i remember when that happened and i was like i called out of work the next week to rewatch. wait rewatch this or rewatch the finale or both both gotcha um okay so jake i know you have the article open i actually copied and pasted some lost pedia notes and trivia and all that sort of stuff you want to run through some of them as you tend to do yeah we hit some pretty good ones uh uh ourselves the one that i like uh the most is that this is claire's last appearance uh until season six and i'm not a huge claire fan so having that season five isn't isn't my favorite season but it scores a lot of points by not having Claire. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but yeah, this is her last uh, appearance, I guess I should say, I gotta clarify, in the original On Island Timeline, because I think she does, does she kind of appear some uh, little, no, she doesn't she, actually, no. Yeah, she appears yeah. in a dream. That's it, yep, dream, that's it, couldn't leave it, but yeah, so she does appear in that little dream or whatever, but uh, in the original On Island Timeline, all the way up until the season six episode, uh, what Kate does. See, the one I thought was equally as interesting. This is the first episode since DOC and the last in the show to solely feature pre-crash flashbacks of the Oceanic Eight. Uh, yeah, of an Oceanic Eight Fifteen survivor. However, it does not feature a singular narrative, but rather multiple events throughout Locke's life. It is the only episode of season four to feature only pre-crash flashbacks try saying that 10 times fast from an oceanic 815 survivor as the other 815 survivors to receive flashbacks Jin and michael either had only post crash flashbacks michael or shared the episode with a flash forward Jin. and it works out because i think at this point Locke was the only original character that i even cared about seeing more of the pre-crash backstory well, because I mean, he's he's been such a, a an interesting character, like in terms of I mean, we already know what caused his back problems and stuff, but there was just I just you just always felt there was so much more to explore with that character. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Christian, who usually appears in a suit, wears clothing that looks more like what the others and Jacob might wear as he did when he first appeared to Claire in Something Nice Back Home. Never noticed that before. Yeah, I had noticed that. I I didn't know if there was some significance to it or why the sudden change. Um, I 
I, I got nothing on that, but I did notice it. Well, this is, we had uh, up until then, up until he appeared to Claire in the previous episode, we hadn't really seen Christian in a while. You know, on on island, man in black, Christian. Right. Yeah. So it was like I mean we know that uh, you know the body of the real Christian was wearing a suit, and that's why man in black appeared as you know as Christian wearing a suit at first. But we also know that he can change his clothes, and I guess. You know, after those first few times, he just kind of got tired of wearing the suit, and so he just changed his clothes. There's a thing here that says, in the November 6, 2006 official Lost podcast, a forum user, Marvolo815, asked, does the island move? Damon Lindelof responded with, I think that's a fascinating thought. Damon and Carlton went on to joke that, quote, if we were to reveal something so ginormous as if the island were moving, they would fire us instantly. And also, it would be much cooler if they would reveal something like that on the show, unquote. Carlton Cues added his sentiments saying, exactly. And this is also the last Locke-centric episode not to start with the word, the? That's, that's a lost Pedia note, I swear to you. <laughs> Right. Some people, <laughs> I don't know, some people take the trivia too far. Like, you know, I'm, I, as right as they may be, I'm like, but I don't care. Like, what's the you know, <laughs> kind <of> deal? <laughs> but that's all I see in, like, maybe, I mean, I'm guessing since Jake hasn't really said anything else, that's all I'm seeing in, like, kind of interesting Lostpedia trivia uh, again, I'm going to ask Wayne, did we miss out on any of your fan theory question things? Um, we kind of covered the, uh, the, the big parts of it, like, you know, the, the discussion about the cabin itself. We still don't really, there's like a lot there that we can't really know. Um, which I, I gotta say, I'm personally okay with. And that's one of the things. There are certain mysteries in the show that I want answered, but then there are certain ones that I don't want answered. And there are certain ones that I want answered that I know I I shouldn't want answered because I have the feeling that certain things, whether they were intentional or not or whatever, I think they would end up being similar to the Richard backstory in the case that, or in the sense that I liked all of everything they, that, that, yeah, that they built up with Richard, but I feel like it got to the point where it was built up so much in my own head that whatever they had delivered would not have lived up. And I think that was the problem that a lot of people felt with the finale of the show. That's why a lot of people don't necessarily like it because it had been built up for so long and as they said, not every question is going to be answered and whatever. And I think people got really upset with that because it was not what they wanted it to be. And it's not just loss that happens with, you know, a lot of different things where it's not what they wanted it to be. So therefore, it's not good. And I feel like there are certain things, maybe even the cabin or whatever, that as much as I want them answered, I equally don't want them answered because whatever we come up with while we're talking, Wayne says one thing, Jake says another, neither one. Again, you can't prove nor disprove either one. And you could take bits of one and bits of another and create your own new theory 
or what have you. And that's the kind of thing that I that I would much prefer at this point in the game. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. That because now we're eight years deep. For the first couple years, I said, yeah, no, I would really love those answers to you know help me sleep at night. But now that we're eight years deep, I'm like, okay, we're not getting that answer. So I, I do like, you know, as you had mentioned, now we get to come up with our own theories. We back it up in our own ways. We either kind of headcanon it ourselves one way or another, and and we get to discuss it, you know. And and uh, uh, the cool thing about us is that we're not going to like get into like fist fights over it. Like, you know, <laughs> you can believe whatever you want to believe. That's great, and like I, I can see it, or and then I'm going to choose to believe it this way. But we accept that we're going to believe two different things, and um, that's what I I like about keeping Lost alive now. Definitely, yeah, definitely agree. Yeah, and like you said, that's the. That's the the thing with this kind of community that we've all built, all these losties, whether it's people who went to... Mo- obviously, most everyone on, on this show has gone to either or both of the lost con events in Hawaii. But even people that I think some of us interact with like in Facebook groups or on Twitter, things like that, who haven't gone to those events... It's just the community of Losties where it is like, like you said, Jake, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to fight you or I'm going to block you because I don't agree. Like, no, that's not what the cabin could possibly be. It has to be this thing that I believe because we're not that, I mean, we're petty about a lot of things, but we're not that petty. (laughs) The only, the only people that get blocked from me are people that enjoy Kate, so there you go. <laughs> you still follow me, though. <laughs> For the sake of the show, we we have to follow you. Oh, ouch! <laughs> it's like written in like contract, especially with mine. Like I have to follow all forms of social media. Well, that's because I just won't let you out of the basement anymore. <laughs> exactly. No, it's like I signed my soul to the devil. It feels like. <laughs> Anyways, enough about my miserable life. Uh, continue on. <laughs> on, on. Actually, on that note, um, do we have anything else that we want to talk about, about uh, the episode Cabin Fever? I got nothing. <laughs> I read my Lostpedia. I got nothing. Yeah, I thought I had something, but uh, yeah, I think we covered everything. Agreed. All right, then if we don't have anything else, why don't you guys, speaking of social media, why don't you guys let them know where they can find you on all corners of the internet that you want to be found? All corners. Let's start with uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. The handle is JakeLCE. Facebook, uh, Jacob Woken. I'm following Clock Shelves. I follow Paul, uh, friends with Wayne, friends with Pat, so you can find me through there. For me, it's... uh... King Cash K A S C H twenty two on Twitter. Uh, same with Instagram and Snapchat as well. It's Pat Cash on Facebook, as well as being friends with these guys. Uh, you can find me through there, as well as my Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv slash King Cash. Uh, Paul and Jake both frequent in there, um, and we may have a treat coming for you guys. A little, so. little something, something being planned here. A little something. That's right. Yes. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter uh, at uh, Selabok at C C E L E B O K. Uh, I'm also the same same name on YouTube. 
Uh, and you can find me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page called Celebok the ISTP, where I talk about uh, personality types and stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, on Twitter, I talk about Lost a lot, so that's probably the best place to reach me. And of course, at Clock Shelves, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Technically, there's a Snapchat, but I don't really use it. Um, but yeah, C L O C K S H E L V E S. Guys, thank you so much for being on this episode. I think this went very well. I think we brought a lot of good things to the table. And I think we should do some sort of combination of all of this again. That sounds fun to me. Absolutely. But until then, I will end with the traditional thank you, namaste, and good luck. Namaste. Hey, this is Jorge. Thanks for listening to Lost with Friends. This yeah, is a fantastic scene that um, we all just talked at the same time. Sorry. <laughs> Plenty to say about it. Now, okay, so Wayne, we're we're a good chunk of the way through the episode, and I know you have these. I know you have these theories that you said weren't necessarily answered, and I'm not saying that they're definitively answered, but. Are there any that you've had that we haven't covered? <laughs> no, I'm laughing, sorry, at the uh, the motorcycle. <laughs> Paul, I'm guessing that was on your end, right? Yeah, that's why I stopped. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, for those that don't know, I know where Paul lives. I've been and visited him a couple times now. Is that normal? Do people race down that street like that fast? That's the main. The... That's the main street. It's one in the morning. Of course they do. Because yeah, Turkey yeah. Hill's right across the way, but the cops won't be visiting it for another like two hours. I I mean like I just even if I was driving, actually I have driven down that street very late in the night and or early in the morning, however you want to look at it. And I just I'm, I didn't I wasn't expecting like uh, I I would have never just started driving that fast myself. It's kind of like a neighborhoodish sort of thing like i wouldn't want to drive fast i'd be afraid that i'd like run over somebody across the street i don't know yeah no you're you're absolutely right but i'm sorry yeah (laughs)